Welcome to Six Degrees of Silvis, a podcast where we talk with artists, art collectors, advisors, museum directors, and curators to learn firsthand how the art world operates and how each participant uniquely addresses vital issues of our time. This week, John talks with the Wall Street Journal staff reporter, Kelly Crow. I trust my own curiosity, but really, we're going to cover the zeitgeist of what it really feels like to be in the art world now, in the art market now, right? You want to have a mix of stories that you feel like you could look back on five or 10 years from now and say, yep, that's what it was like, like crazy enough as it is, like that's how we did it, you know? So, you know, sometimes it's like I did once this crazy story about how people were letting their children collect art and they were bringing them to the auctions and they were bidding on Warhols and they were going to art fairs. Some of them were usual suspects, you know, the children of major collectors. But what's fascinating is that they, you know, I just noticed them sitting in the in the aisles at the auction houses. And I thought, oh, I've never seen them before. You know, I wonder what, what are they doing bidding on a Jeff Koons? You know, he looks like he's eight years old. So some of it's I trust my own curiosity when I'm wondering, why is, how does that work? Here's the host of the show, John Silvis. I am your host, John Silvis. I'm an art advisor and a curator based in New York. Most of my research I share with my friends and my clients to focus on global contemporary art, usually with emerging and mid-career artists. With this podcast, I hope to pull back the curtain to uh, allow us to engage with some of the conversations that happen in the art world and encourage and push the art conversation forward. Please join me in welcoming these wonderful guests. Thank you everyone for joining me on this podcast, Six Degrees of Silvis. I'm really excited today to talk with my friend, Kelly Crow, who is an amazing writer and reporter and is really well-liked and trusted by many people in the art world. She is a staff reporter who focuses on the art market for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, thanks, Kelly, for joining us. Um, You report on everything happening at the auctions, the art fairs, you analyze uh, art funds, art buying activities of the world's largest museums. Um, You go to studios, you interview collectors, and you've really done this on a global scale. And uh, you've been at the journal now since 2006. Um, You've had some really uh, major breakout stories uh, with news about Leon Black buying the Scream and the Saudi Prince buying the Da Vinci Salvatore Mundi. You also introduced readers to people like Jose Mugrabi, who has all the Warhols, Yan Bing, the Beijing car dealer, who's a major collector. So you've really gotten a hold of uh, some of these major stories, and I think in part because Uh, people trust you, they are willing to talk to you and give you information and also just love how you write about all these stories and are able to make them relatable to the rest of us who are um, just kind of trudging along in the art world. So welcome, Kelly. Great to talk to you today, Kelly. Uh, It was wonderful to list some of your uh, 
recent stories and accomplishment, and I could go on and on, but thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. Um, one of the things that I've loved about your reporting is that you seem to really uh, be able to hone in on stories of the moment and get a hold of people that, you know, for the most of us are almost impossible to reach or, or to get in touch with. Um, yeah, how, how does that all work? And, and do you enjoy um, kind of uncovering those stories and, you know, finding these threads of information? I, honestly, I do feel like that's probably one of the most intellectually challenging diplomatic parts of the job, and I do really relish it. Um, the truth is that the Wall Street Journal's mandate is not to cover in a granular way everything about everything, right? We're a financial paper, we're a business paper, we're among the largest in the country, but we have to be a little choosy about what we dive deeper into. And so I am somewhat selective about these rabbit holes that I fall down. Um, it, it, we don't cover everything on a spot news bulletin board sort of a way. I save that for Twitter. So if I really am going to invest some investigative chops into a story or really delve into a, a character or artist or a collector, I just, yeah, I want to make sure the mix is right and I don't make those decisions in a vacuum. Um, but I am always talking and, and more importantly, listening um, to sort of who everyone else is curious about, right? Like I trust my own curiosity, but really if we're going to cover the zeitgeist of what it really feels like to be in the art world now, in the art market now, right? You want to have a mix of stories that you feel like you could look back on five or 10 years from now and say, yep, that's what it was like, like crazy enough as it is, like that's how we did it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes it's like I did once this crazy story about how people were, letting their children collect art and they were bringing them to the auctions and they were bidding on Warhols and they were going to art fairs. Some of them were usual suspects and, you know, the children of major collectors. But what's fascinating is that they, you know, I just noticed them sitting in the, in the aisles at the auction houses and I thought, Oh, I've never seen them before. You know, I wonder what, what are they doing bidding on a Jeff Koons? You know, he looks like he's eight years old. So some of it's I trust my own curiosity when I'm wondering why is how does that work you know, and then other times, you know I get emails and calls and I mean back when the world was different right we would run into people you know yeah. all over the planet, yeah. um, have these great casual conversations and you can tell when a collector when their hair has been blown back right by an artist you can just tell when they're totally enamored of someone for doing, you know, something really fresh and original. And you can tell when they haven't quite riddled out yet, what makes that artist tick, right? And so I love doing stories that try to answer that question. After the Da Vinci was sold, right? Everyone was like, where did it go? Where did it go? Just sort of these parlor game questions that everyone has. Some of them just drift away after a day or two. And some of them just nag at us and gnaw on us, or at least like voyeuristically, right? We would like to know, like, where did that win? Where did that land? Did that really go to Saudi Arabia? Like two papers have written about it. No one else has. Like, is it true? Is it really true? And so that was really one of the last major trips I took uh, last March, if you can believe that, was to Saudi Arabia because I thought I just have to get to the bottom of it. Um, it just, it bugs me when I don't know things. And I guess that's a good occupational have. But so your, your, your focus is really the kind of the macro view of the market, would you say? I mean, you're looking for uh, kind of the, 
the big stories, things that, that might cause big shifts in the art world? I think I have to look at it from 30,000 feet at first, because that's how our paper looks at markets sort of in every line, right? So we're, we're, we're interested in these sort of seismic changes that happen not only in the broader financial markets, but in alternative assets and in ways of dealing with property, just in ways of how people handle money, right? So if you start from the top down, you're going to get into the granular nitty gritty very quickly because you're going to need to find the evidence um, that supports your hunch or, um, or follow a tip, right? So it's not, we're not, we don't stay up there, (laughs) but we often, I'll try to start there because I want to make sure that we're at least, um, not, you know, missing the forest for the trees in terms of what's really moving markets and what's really moving art, you know, around the planet. Um, what's happening even right now with millennials in China and Korea and Indonesia, you know, that will determine often the tastes and price levels for lots of artists for the next few years. And I think we have to be, you know, paying attention to it before everyone else is. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it, it's interesting in terms of uh, thinking about the the market overall of the, the last 10 years and the kind of uh, wealth that's been visible in the art world. And I, I was mm-hmm. you know, in conversations with some people recently about art funds again, which, which were uh, many of which were started like 10 years ago and have had varying levels of success. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, people have often asked me, you know, why why the art world has become just so important and, you know, a $60 billion plus industry. And, and I was curious, I mean, you've been on the beat since 2006 and um, just curious about your thoughts as to, you know, A, why this has happened or also like where this, um, kind of new investment and wealth is coming from? Well, I mean, look at what just happened recently with GameStop, right? I mean, the whole, all of the establishment in Wall Street was upended by just a surge of um, a little bit punk, right? (laughs) Punk attitude from these day traders, but they were really, they had underestimated, right? Both the purchasing clout and the market influence that a bunch of people day trading could have on the market. And I think it's a very apt metaphor for what's happened in the art world is that the art world used to be this clubby, uh, bespoke, right? Environment with a handful of fairs and the same 300 collectors and a few dozen dealers who sort of really set the taste and wrote art history. And if you didn't, if you didn't frequent New York and London and you didn't go to Cologne, you know, like you missed out, right? You weren't a part of that conversation. And I think it's been impressive um, and probably overdue, right? To see everyone else join join the, the game um, in Africa and all, all across Asia and in South America, like everyone's at the table now and they all have their own eyes with which they look for the art that resonates with them. And so the conversation has gotten very fractured. Um, and for that reason, I think it's, all to the good for the art, right? But there are people that come into this marketplace and they want to make sense of it, right? And so if you come from a financial background, the best way that you try to make sense of things is through numbers. And so if you don't want to be a rube, you will either, you know, you know, hire an advisor to sort of help you navigate mm-hmm. the social quagmire that is the art world, or you try to find a, a fund or a person who's got some 
handle on, right? Um, how to slice and dice the market financially. And so I, I have, it's been fascinating to watch. Um, the art world try to go from being this sort of clubby handshake place um, to operating more like a traditional marketplace where you have lots of players and no one person calls the shots. Um, but that's been obviously unnerving for people who appreciated the slower way of thinking. You know, uh, we're not used to having an auction where hundreds of thousands of people are watching, right? Like we just aren't, we were already pretty wowed by having 600 people crammed into one space, right? And maybe a handful of phone bidders. Like that's something that we were used to when I started on this beat. And now, you know, you've got people watching on, you know, Chinese versions of YouTube by the hundreds of thousands. Like that's just, that is going to change how people interact with art. And those people probably will be having an increased, you know, influence in the speculation on all kinds of art for good and for bad right i mean a, a lot of this is just cheating pains in my opinion and i think like those art funds the good ones sort of survived and you know may have found fresh ways to buy and sell art and the the shady ones snuffed out you know pretty quickly i most of the funds that i was tracking you know during mm -hmm. and before the recession most of them have already sort of you know, they bought a bunch of stuff and then they just cashed out two or three years later. There's still not a lot of appetite for people holding on to art for a long time if they're doing it financially. Mm -hmm. We who love art and are interested in the conversation that art history is having, right, on an institutional level and just as just as people who love art know that the longer you hold it, right, the better, <laughs> the better your chances will be of, of finding the next Picasso. So I also think hopefully in and among all this sort of surge of new interest and new people sort of seeing art as an investment vehicle. I really hope that they kind of will fall in love with art along the ride and will take a breath and realize that there's a whole other wonderful tableau being told about where art is going and maybe they hang on to things. And, you know, that becomes a part of their story too, in addition to just making money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in addition to the money, I think that there is also this positive effect of the canon being written differently now, because it's just not uh, the curators at the Whitney and MoMA uh, defining what's important, but you have now uh, curators, collectors in Beijing and in Indonesia, all these other places that are, mm -hmm. um, you know, making claims to the story and showing really exciting art. Um, so well, I'm I'm thrilled that art history that. is getting rewritten. You know, I mean, it's great. I mean, I I had a conversation with an art advisor a couple of weeks ago, and she admitted she's like, look, when I came into this business, like we were told that you know art by white men was the best, right? That's where mm -hmm. the genius really lie. And now I'm having to go back and sort of retrain myself to rethink every period of art history that I sort of ignored or thought the canon was set and you know, all of those canons are sort of getting reshuffled and getting expanded. And, you know, women and people of color weren't as prized, right, for a very long time are now getting a second look. And for me, that's super exciting. I mean, that's more to the table, more the merrier, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's wonderful. And I've really loved being able to travel the last few years and explore uh, different parts of the world that I just find uh, so wonderful and fascinating. Um, I mean, it also occurred to me while you were talking about sort of, you know, the auctions and 
this influx of capital. Um, I was wondering if in some way, at least at the high end of the market, it, it's creating a little bit more equity in a weird way that, um, you know, Wall Street people can't just walk in and buy what they want because there's people from all over the world now that are uh, kind of there to, uh, you know, buy as well. Um, and I guess the, the other part of that is, you know, I'm, of course, in, in my question always is like, how, how do you think that trickles down to the artists and people further down the food chain? Hmm. That's a good question. And I suppose I feel like two questions in one. I'm, I'm always. No, no, I'll try. <laughs> it's like the bills um, in Congress, you know. I mean, I feel like old money and new money have always tussled right at the top. Um, and the term nouveau riche is still very applicable to some of the new, newer collectors coming in. And while they do have sort of the funds to sort of muscle out or, or outbid some of the more seasoned collectors, um, you get burned a few times, right? And you quickly wise up. So there's a very sharp learning curve at that high end. And I feel like um, there's always a little bit of tension when sort of someone new enters that marketplace. One, because it kind of shocks everyone how much of an influence they can have. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one or two bidders, um, you know, north of $20 million is going to upend a sale um, in a way that the tried and true collectors, you know, are always scoffing at. But but it's true. I mean, you know, one or two people going on a spree and buying up everything um, will cause everything to sort of be a little bit more expensive. And obviously the collectors don't love that, but those, what I have found is that those collectors after making a few of those purchases, the brand new ones will often kind of take a breath because it's hard to sustain that kind of a momentum forever. And also the more that you're around art, um, even if you've collected a fair bit of trophy art, after a while you really do want to learn a little bit more about what you've bought. And so with that comes some wisdom and sometimes some more circumspection. Um, so but I feel like that's a little bit of a, you know, twas ever thus sort of thing. As far as the trickle down goes, I honestly wish that it trickled down more. Um, there's still the vast majority of art that gets traded and sold in this country is selling for, you know, under $5,000, to be honest. I mean, we pay a lot of, and I, I'm guilty of this as too, an outsized amount of attention on, you know, the $32 million dinosaurs and the $450 million paintings just because the numbers are wow. And usually those objects are super extraordinary, right? But by and far, by, by, by and large, the flotsam and jetsam that get sold, you know, in the day sales, in these online sales, that's what's really sort of the bedrock of this marketplace. The regional houses, you know, you go out to Chicago and Dallas and they're, they're churning through tons of stuff, right? Most of that's not super expensive. So... Does it trickle down? I don't know. Um, I feel like they almost operate as just different marketplaces. You know, it's like the same thing as comparing, you know, does a high-end, you know, $80 million apartment in New York has a huge effect on the luxury real estate market in New York. Does that affect, you know, what gets sold in Scranton? I don't know. I really don't know. I in fashion, you can sometimes make a more direct correlation because a certain color or a certain look will, will take fire and sort of catch on and sort of trickle down in a really direct sort of way. I feel like retailers kind of take their cues and, you know, within a few seasons, everyone's wearing whatever, you know, was yeah. popular in the haute couture lines. I'm not sure that that's exactly the case in art. Um, I'd be fascinated to read a study that could prove that. Um, 
I feel like artists are never really bound by rules, right? They're always sort of pushing and questioning and nudging and maybe trying to take down the people who came right before them, right? Like intellectually. So I feel like it's hard for art to sort of take those cues from what's selling. Um, And maybe I think it shouldn't, you know, I think artists need to be pushing forward um, and not worrying about what's selling well behind them, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I definitely hope they don't and they sort of uh, really hone their own personal visions. Um, You know, in, in talking though about, you know, these maybe potentially like separate markets or that maybe these markets that run mm. parallel, I, I do find it interesting that, you know, the last few years galleries have sort of encroached on the auction house territory and then, you know, vice versa, um, the mm-hmm. amount of like very, very new recent art that you can buy by people like Jonas Wood or other people um, at the auctions to me is kind of has been a big shift. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Or you have, you know, people like Larry Gagosian doing uh, Picasso shows that museums aren't even doing. Yeah, I think it's all gotten a little blurry, right? The art market was already pretty opaque and the art world is sort of opaque. And now yeah. maybe that's where the 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 chubby the the chumminess, right, still continues to pervade our world um in a way that maybe other marketplaces don't. But um I do feel like, you know, these major dealers now who have multiple, multiple presences, they have just as much, you know, heft and sway in terms of determining the popularity of an artist as a major museum. Um, and they're, that's their job. I mean, their job is to make a market for that artist. So they're kind of playing auctioneer when it suits them and, and starting, you know, uh, uh, OVR rooms and stuff on their web pages, just the same way that auction houses are doing these private sales. So it's all very incestuous. Um, and so long as it's, you know, giving artists a chance to show their work and giving people a format to buy them, I don't um, really see the harm. I do know that there is some harm in really pumping and dumping these younger artists when they when they hit the auction yeah. scenes. Um, it's so tempting to, to watch these rises when things are selling for 10 times their estimate. I mean, this, it's, you know, it really is like watching gambling. You know, when you see someone, when the bell rings and yeah. you see someone hit the lottery, it's just, it's. We, we would slow down and watch that no matter what, but there is a crash that tends to happen with that. And it's really, you know, you look at uh, Amawako Buafo. I mean, he, you know, when I talked to him, you know, yeah. he was still really doe-eyed and sweet. And, and I had, I even warned him when I talked to him on the phone, I said, look, you, you know, this show of yours is about to open up the rebels in Miami. I said, you need to hang on because it's about to get really crazy for you. And sure enough, like it has. And so I think there's a little bit of a reckoning um, you know, Angie Dakak and Neely Crosby, bless her heart, had to go through that herself a few years before. And, and typically the good ones like her will find a good gallery and kind of make it through that first blistering season or two of speculation mm-hmm. and then really hopefully get get cared for in a way that keeps them, you know, from getting churned Rounded. through and, and dumped. Yeah. But I not everyone that. survives it, you know. <laughs> not everyone does and honestly the work the you know the work is usually the cure for what ails you so if you keep making good work um you kind of can see yourself through that place um the artists that i feel sad for are the ones that just kind of you know get stuck in that rut or or leave altogether and you know can't really find their way through it but it's a happy problem because 
we could all be accountants, right? So if you choose a life in art, you're already choosing pretty high stakes. Sure. Um, and there's, there is a lot of fame and money that can come with it, but there's a lot of hard, thankless work that happens in the studio, you know, that nobody sees and no one's going to thank you for it really, because they're not, <laughs> we're all busy doing our things. But if you do make something that's great, that really captures something fresh, I am hoping the world will thank you at some point. Um, but it's not guaranteed. Well, and as wonderful as technology is, I think that that has been a major contributor to uh, this kind of acceleration of these young artists, I think, because, you know, collectors are instantly Instagramming it, they're uh, talking about it at the art fairs. So I think there's been this acceleration of information and, um, you know, I I feel like it has in some ways changed the dynamic of the Mm -hmm. market. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious from your perspective to, um, cause you know, we both have been, been around sort of, uh, b- before these, uh, stratospheric, uh, rises, <laughs> you know, of both the expansion of art fairs and, uh, the auctions and, and just the, the money that's floating around. But, um, I mean, how much of it do you still think is based on the good old fashioned handshake and, um, you know, the, the trust of person to person sitting across from each other at dinner. Look, relationships are still really important, particularly the auction houses when they're looking for consignments. Mm-hmm. They have to sort of establish some rapport with people because the money has gotten so big, right? And because a handful of dealers, like what happened with Aquavella and Pace and Gagosian, they can step forward and offer, you know, now a viable alternative to sales. Um, mm-hmm. Zorner did it before, remember with the Laos, the Laos estate. So, you know, these big, these big galleries can go toe to toe with the houses mm-hmm. now for some of these estates. And so what makes the difference is sometimes the numbers, but more often the relationship, right? So I think that will continue to be cultivated. Um, and in the same way, I think it helps, for collectors to become invested in in an artist's career, if not in their person. And most collectors I know are dying to meet the artist and they're kind of still considered to be the rock stars of our world. And so there's still a little bit of a celebrity thrill, right? That you get from visiting an artist's studio and seeing where the magic happens. And so I don't know, I mean, until collectors no longer want to meet the artist, I can't, I can't imagine that that relationship won't be important. Um, yeah, although not every collector likes to go to studio, I've had several right. tell me they're they're curious about what's going on in Brooklyn, but they don't really want to come with me because they're they're worried about the pressure or or you know people sort of expecting True. to buy and um, so I've seen both sides of that and 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 I totally can understand that. I mean, um, but they probably are following those artists on Instagram. That's it. I mean, there's still like a way that they can sort of connect and follow and track the artists that they like. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe at a slight remove, but I think we yeah. we have you know that that again that need to sort of know and be known. So I don't. Um, I think relationships will continue to matter, and certainly the very high end, the blue chip end, you know, the art that moves around the world is in some case driven by relationships. If a brand new person comes onto the scene and starts buying a lot, you know, buying a lot of work there is going to be a scrum of people who very quickly want to know that person. I mean, that's just sort of, you know, that's kind of eternal too. So um, maybe the difference would be that new collectors who are, you know, looking to spend, you know, let's say between 10 and $50,000 on art a year or less 
have more options to sort of, you know, quietly do a lot of research. They're getting to see a lot more work. Um, they're getting to do a lot more um, research about what they like. And there's a lot more information um, about the artists that they're introduced to than they've ever been able to access before, right? Like you don't need to have this vast art library and reams and reams of access to research libraries and the like. You can go online and Google. So I think, you know, that that part is good, being able to sort of very quickly learn a lot about an artist that you've encountered. Um, and that's, that part of technology has been great. I mean, along those lines, how are you feeling about uh, the global art fair circuit, which we've of course, had to sit out on this last year and will probably only very slowly and quietly creep back. I mean, how, how much do you think that will really not only change uh, the market or, you know, how do you think that will affect uh, our communication long term? I'm fascinated by it because I think I had almost approached, I mean, I'm not allowed to have burnout professionally right but I had approached kind of this maximum moment of like I'm not sure how many stairs I can physically get to and still like see my family you know because there was a chance for me to be somewhere every weekend and um, it had fallen out of sort of the seasonal rhythm you know the May November June October the rhythm that sort of made sense and and, and it's sort of like how, how fashion week works right like the fashion reporters had a moment when you need to be in New York when you need to be in Paris when you need to be in Milan but the art fairs, it was like, you know, fashion week somewhere all over the planet every single week. And it just got to be a little bit much. So there probably was, you know, some sifting and some, 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 some consolidation that are needed to happen. Um, and it's sad that it, that it happened this way, but, um, that was probably due. Um, and I think I've also been sort of equally surprised by missing art fairs. Um, I never thought I would say that, but I, I miss the chance to sort of bump into, you know, folks from, from all of those places, right. That I wouldn't normally get to see in a given week. And as well as just the, the, the fun of bumping into something in a booth, right. That I've never seen before either. So I think that model has to survive somehow. I don't know that the online rooms are, are, are anything more than a placeholder, Mm-hmm. Um, a little stopgap measure. Um, and I do feel like the early fairs that come back, you know, people will be looking to Basel and Freeze um, to sort of set that tone. But I think there's probably going to have to be maybe timed tickets or spaced out booths or, you know, other social precautions as we kind of wade back in. It may not be this year, it may be next year. But if you were to ask me if I were to wear a mask and keep some hand sanitizer in my purse and get a chance to, you know, mill around uh, Basel or go to Venice to see the Biennale. Like I'm, you know, I think in a year from now, I think we're all going to be, I think a little bit more willing, you know, once the population is more heavily vaccinated, um, I'd be hard pressed to give that up long-term. So I think some, some model of the Biennale and the fair will emerge and it, it may just be Darwinian for a while. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I've always in, enjoyed the art fair for the compactness and then really uh, getting to see friends or, or just meeting a lot of new people from around the world that would be hard to um, get to know otherwise. I mean, I've always enjoyed when we can sort of cross paths at various points around the world and 
<laughs> I know. That's half the times I saw you was bumping into you at a fair yeah. somewhere on the planet. Love, love picking your brain and, you know, kind of seeing seeing tips that you have or, um, you know, it's just that exchange of information uh, between everyone with the artists that are there, the collectors, the other advisors who are kind of looking at you like, well, what are you looking at? And, you know, which <laughs> boots are you going to? And, um, you know, all of that is is really fun. And, and I think really positive ultimately for everyone. I think too. I mean, I miss the social dynamics. Art is not something that I've ever really loved and experienced in isolation, right? Before. So even going to a museum is kind of a communal experience. You're surrounded by other people, even on their best behavior, right? But you sort of feel like you're seeing it. So I miss, yeah, I miss seeing art with other people. Yeah, I, I agree. So hopefully we'll get back to that soon. But I'm glad we have a chance to catch up like this. And um, it's, it's always fun to cross paths. And hopefully we'll be doing a lot more of that in 2021. Let's see. Here, here. I'm happy. I'm looking forward to bumping into you somewhere in the world one of these days when it gets better. <laughs> yeah, even though we're, we're not that far from each other. But, you know, soon. <laughs> We're close. Maybe we have to go to uh, Basel again to connect. So, I'd love that. If we have to, I'll get there. We'll do it. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, uh, thanks, Kelly. It's always great to talk with you. This was uh, great to hear more about your world. And hopefully some of our listeners will get excited about uh, following your stories. And some young writers will be inspired to uh, look to you as a mentor. You're, you're an amazing writer. Mm -hmm. so. We need good reporters. The whole world will agree with you on that one. We need more good ones. So Absolutely. I won't turn that down. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for checking out Six Degrees of Silvis. I'm the editor of the show, Evan Halter. If you'd like to learn more about John or the guests we have on the podcast, please visit johnsilvis.com. Thanks for listening.